Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. Following my interview with Jacob Hacker, Jay's going to be joining me to provide a conservative viewpoint and critique. We feel that this is more in keeping with the bipartisan spirit of the politics guys, and it's something we hope to do whenever we have an interview where there's not much of a conservative or liberal perspective in evidence. We'd love to know what you think about this format change, and you can send your feedback to us at mail at politicsguys.com. And now, on to the interview. My guest today is Yale political scientist Jacob Hacker. Dr. Hacker's work on economic insecurity and inequality has been extremely influential, and not just in academia, but also in Congress, where he's contributed to the design of a number of legislative proposals. A while back, he and I talked about his book, American Amnesia, co-authored with Paul Pearson. And today, I'm very happy to welcome him back to the show to discuss the newly released version of his book, The Great Risk Shift. Jacob Hacker, welcome back. Thank you so much for having me, Michael. You know, I feel like the best place to start, and this is going to sound very much like an acad- the academic in me uh, coming out, is with, with us defining some of our terms here. Uh, and there are three, I think, that are really critical, and that's poverty, economic inequality, and economic insecurity. And I think, you know, they're interrelated, certainly, in some ways, but I think there are also some pretty important distinctions between them. And so I was hoping you would sort of start with explaining what you mean by those terms. That's a great question. And, and indeed, the reason that I wrote the book in a lot of ways is that I felt that our discourse about the economy really missed uh, a, a fundamental feature of people's lives. And that is that they're not in the same place economically uh, all the time, that sometimes their incomes go up and sometimes they go down. Sometimes they face uh, really uh, big health care costs or other costs, and sometimes uh, they're more, they have a more stable economic circumstances. And so most of our measures like poverty and even inequality are are really static. They're based on a point in time. So let's let's look at poverty. You know, our measure of poverty, depending on whether we're looking at poverty relative to some uh, standard in society like the median income, or whether we're looking at at poverty based on some kind of absolute standard like the U.S. federal poverty line, that's a measure of where people are in a given year. So if a household is below the line, uh, they're poor, and if they're above the line, they're not. And if uh, if you look over time, as researchers who study poverty have found, uh, lots and lots of households spend some t- but time in poverty, but actually very few spend their whole lives in poverty. I, the sociologist Mark Rank has done some statistical analyses where he's found that more than half of Americans uh, will spend a year in poverty by the time they're 65, uh, which is quite striking when yeah. you think about the fact that only about you know one in five uh, are poor at any point in time. Uh, inequality is relational, right? We don't ever say that someone is unequal. We have to say unequal relative to what? So uh, we say you know, that the rich are getting richer and the middle class is, is not. Um, and that's 
creating greater inequality between them. But it's also usually seen as static. So when we look at those inequality statistics, uh, we tend to assume that the people who are rich and the people who are middle class and poor are the same, but they're not necessarily. Sometimes people do move up the income ladder, and sometimes, as I write about in The Great Risk Shift, uh, they fall down it. And, and indeed, when I started working on this book, the main folks who were looking at social and economic dynamics of the sort I was looking at were people who were more conservatively inclined politically. That is, they were arguing, as Milton Friedman famously did, that what really mattered was not your income in any given year, but sort of your permanent income. You know, what was your level over time? And they argued that there was a lot of upward mobility. So someone would be working in a Walmart, maybe, when they got out of college, but uh, they would be able to move up the income ladder, um, or they would be experience a setback, but they would recover within a, a year or two, and they would be their permanent income would be fine. And that um, seemed to me to be partially true, but, but, but mostly wrong, that first, people really care about the downward trips yeah. on the economic ladder. So we know that people are highly loss averse. That is that they, they, they fear losses and they, and they value things that they have um, very much. And, and so, you know, it's just not the same when you give, you know, when you give a kid <laughs> a new toy, they're happy. If you try to take a toy away from a kid, they're apoplectic, right? So loss aversion is a yeah. big thing. But the other reason is that if you think about it, when you go down the income ladder, um, you know, a lot of other bad things are often happening at the same time. You're losing assets. You're um, facing major life events, healthcare costs. Um, and, you know, even comfortable middle-class families it will experience those kind of dramatic um, losses. So, you know, the, the current uh, Democratic presidential candidate, Elizabeth Warren, actually made her name studying bankruptcy, made her name at least in my circles, um, and she she found that a lot of people who ended up in bankruptcy were pretty solidly middle class before they did. Um, but of course, you know, once they had declared bankruptcy, they they had uh, really lost a lot already, and they had to, you know, have their credit uh, docked and their um, life circumstances changed for for years to restore their credit, even if they declared bankruptcy. Yeah. So that that was a a reminder. That kind of work was a reminder of how severe these drops can be. And you mentioned that, uh, you know, poverty and inequalities are largely seen as, as static, at least measured as static measures. And that gets into, I think, a, a, a difficult, uh, challenging measurement issue when we talk about uh, when we talk about economic insecurity or volatility, as you sometimes refer to it, because it's a lot harder to get a good measure of uh, volatility over time. Correct. Absolutely. And, you know, it's it's so hard that I still think we're really in a pretty early stage of understanding um, some of the really important features of income and um, income volatility. So so let me let me define volatility really quickly, because right. I think that's that's a term that people hear with the stock market. Um, and it, it, it's it's not as clear. It's not as commonly associated with income. But the idea of volatility is essentially that whatever, let's say at any income level, you could have an income that's just moving along as a, as a completely straight line, or you could have something that looked much more like uh, the stock market, right? Gyrating up and down. Um, and what 
researchers who started studying this found pretty quickly was that most people have more jagged life experiences. They might be going up, but they're not going up in a straight line, or they might be going down um, over time, but not in a straight line. Now, measuring that is really hard, and it's really hard for, for two big reasons. The first reason is that to do this, you actually have to look at the same people over time. And that may seem kind of obvious, but most of the surveys we have, like the Census Bureau's current population survey, uh, don't follow people over time. Well, actually, the Census Bureau's current population survey, actually, you can follow people for two years if you uh, match them across two surveys. But that's a little technical, and it doesn't allow you to follow them for longer than two years. Right. So there really aren't a whole lot of what's called panel surveys um, in the United States. The second thing I think, and this is still a huge problem, is that we have in a lot of the so-called cross-sectional surveys, the ones that are done with a random sample of people, right, every year or even every month, we get a lot of different kinds of data. So we have uh, evidence on their wealth and on what they spend money on, and we have evidence on uh, their political views sometimes. And so we have this very comprehensive picture in a lot of the cross-sectional surveys that we don't have in a lot of the overtime or panel studies. Um, and that's really, really important because if you want to understand people's economic circumstances, you kind of want to be able to triangulate between uh, among the kind of three big measures of people's um, economic condition. One is their income, another is their wealth, and a third is what, what economists call consumption, but the rest of us just know as spending, right? What do you spend money on? And if you think about it, each of those things really matters for economic security, right? If you have more wealth, then you can deal with economic shocks more easily by spending down your wealth. If you have more, uh, if you have more wealth, you even if your income drops, you might be able to keep spending. So, but we can't see that if we don't have wealth, and we can't see your spending um, if we don't have these right. consumption data. And if you think about spending, it's sometimes it's stuff that people love to spend money on, right? Like buying a new phone. But a lot of the things, the big ticket items we spend money on are things that we, we, we kind of feel we have to yeah. spend money on, like healthcare uh, and education and uh, housing. And those things can be really variable, right? So for example, you know, if you look at people's healthcare costs, right, if they have a major medical event, even if they have health insurance, they'll often end up spending a lot of money in a given period of time, far more than they can pay out of their own current income. And the last thing I would just say here is, and, and we can talk a little bit more about where I found the different data that I use in the book, but the last thing I would say here is that, um, is that the, the really striking thing doesn't require any fancy statistics to look at. And that is just to ask this sort of simple question is like, how long could a household go without its current income um, if it uh, if it lost, if, if one of the family members lost its job, um, and you can think of it in the same way as what would have hap what would happen if a family has a you know a stable income but experiences a huge income uh, financial shock like a massive medical cost, and the answer is a really really strikingly small percentage of people have uh, much beyond uh, you know what they earned last week, um, and you know it depends on how you define it, um, but the idea that um, people are um, asset poor or 
um, are highly constrained, you know, living paycheck to paycheck is just true when you start to look at the data, and it's particularly true in the United States. Um, and that's part of the reason why there's so much insecurity here. They're just, it's really hard to cope with a lot of these risks um, because people are living really close to the edge. And they're living really close to the edge, I think, because there's been really very little income growth below the top. And a lot of the cost, a lot of the things that we value have gone up in cost quite a bit, especially healthcare and housing. Um, now, I, there are other reasons, but I think those are the sort of the fundamental reasons why. So then you add on top of that, that our safety net, if you will, is pretty, pretty tattered. Um, partly because we rely a lot on employers to provide benefits and those employers aren't providing them as much as they did in the past, then you, you really get to understand why there's so much economic insecurity in the United States. Yeah. And, and you, I think you detail very well in, in the book, how that's been rising over time, yeah. really since the, really since the 1980s. And what, when I, when I think about this in terms of the conservative, what I, what I typically think of as the conservative counters to this. Uh, there are, I guess, two main arguments that I generally hear, and I'll call them just the shorthand, the social mobility argument and the rising tide lifts all boats argument. And the, the first one, that social mobility argument is basically, as I understand it, that hey, volatility isn't that big of a problem as long as social mobility is strong, because in a really dynamic economy, you would maybe expect a lot of volatility, but you know, that's the whole American dream idea is one day you're down, the next day you're up. But as long as you have that ability to go from the bottom to the top and social mobility is strong, we really don't have that much of a problem. And you actually talk about social mobility in the book and you've talked about it in previous books. What do we know about social mobility in the United States compared to uh, other countries like us, you know, well-developed, rich democracies? Well, we know a lot more than we did even a decade ago, thanks to the work of economists who really, really um, delved into this and, and produced their own data. So they face the same problem. Those who are looking at mobility face the same problem that those of us looking at insecurity do. That is, you need to look at people over time. Right. That's what mobility is all about. So, for example, Raj Chetty, um, the economist who um, has done some of the best work on mobility, you know, he ended up linking this data that I talked about, the current population survey, the kind of annual data with tax records and other data to produce really detailed overtime estimates of people's long-term mobility. And so the basic story is that income mobility is lower in the United States than in other rich countries. Whether you define income mobility as relative, that is, uh, you know, what share of people are getting to moving up into a higher um, a higher income group, and, or whether you define it as absolute mobility, what share of people are richer after a certain period or richer than their parents were. And perhaps the most striking illustration of this is the work of, it comes out of the work of Raj Chetty, in which he shows that the chance that a kid would have a higher, will have a higher income than his or her parents um, was about 92% for people born in the 1940s, but had fallen to 50% for people born in 1980. That's wow. the last gener generation he looked at. So it went from being a sure thing or almost sure thing to a coin flip. And, uh, and the main reason he shows um, is inequality. So if you had had the same level of inequality as you had uh, between 1940 and 1980, 
after 1980. That is, if you just held in, you held the distribution of income constant across those periods, he estimates that you would have a rate that was closer for, uh, that was fairly close, not to, at the 1940 rate, but, but sure. fairly close to it. Um, it'd be up in the 80s. Um, and yet, he also shows that if you if income growth had been just as has been just as fast after 1980 that it was on, uh, that it was before uh, in the 1940-80 period, that that would increase the rate too, but not nearly as much. Obviously, if you had the same income growth and the same inequality, yeah. you'd have the same numbers. Yeah. But point is that it's really about inequality. The reason that that um, kids are less likely to have higher incomes than their parents did is that most of the income growth since the 1980s has been going to the top parts of the income distribution. Yeah. Now, I actually think the conservatives have a really important point um, when they say that, um, that dynamism is an important part of economic uh, prosperity that countries that have that encourage people to invest in new skills and to take other kinds of risks, start businesses and the like, are countries that prosper. What I disagree with is the idea that the that a that that what we're seeing in the U.S. is really that kind of dynamism. I think it's unfortunately um, uh, the case that we we see a, just a lot of hardship that has no real benefit to our economy and lots and and really is horrible for the people involved but the other thing i would say is that the the way to think about it in my view is that countries want to have they want to have people bearing risk but not too much risk they want to have ways of protecting people against um really extreme risks and if you think about it that's sort of how capitalist economies were built right if businesses the business form in the United States was built on the principle of limited liability, right? So you would you'd lose something if your company went down, um, but you wouldn't lose everything. And we've we've always had a more generous bankruptcy system uh, than other countries, in part because we understand that if people have ability to make a fresh start, um, that they, if they don't end up in you know debtor's prison or ruined for life, that they're much more likely to want to to make those risky bets. So, so to my mind, there, there's a really strong argument. And I think more conservatives, at least those who are not, um, you know, too closely associated with, um, with the kind of very current um, Republican coalition, which is, I think, much more hostile to social policies like um, Medicaid than are, say, Republican voters or lots of Republican uh, conservative intellectuals, that a lot of people in the conservative movement are starting to come around to the view that actually if we give people some risk protection, not only does it make for an economy that's dynamic, but not, uh, you know, isn't destroying lives, but it also probably reduces the pressure for policies like trade protection or immigration restrictions that we think aren't very good for growth. So it's actually an interesting move that I'm seeing a, more and more people who are have sort of somewhat more uh, free market kind of conservative instincts um, being uh, attracted to the idea of insurance, social insurance, as a way of 
discouraging policies that they think are counterproductive. But, you know, if you look at our current politics right now, it's sort of like the horse is out of the barn (laughs) when it comes to a lot of those policies. So do you want me to address the second point you made? Oh, yeah. And I think you you, I think in part got to that whole rising tide thing, because, of course, that gets into the argument of, well, this is the price you pay for greater economic growth. But you suggested that's not really what the data shows. It's not. And, you know, I think we really have have no there are very few people who who seriously have engaged with the data who are arguing that a, that a rising tide is lifting all boats in the way it once did. I think that we're really the arguments now are, are more at the margins. Um, so, you know, if if you count health benefits as income, then maybe middle class people are doing better. Um, You know, these are the kind of arguments, these are kind of head of the pin, you know, angels on the head of the pin arguments rather than the, no one's really disputing the basic idea, which is that wages have been flat, family incomes have been stagnant, um, and that most of the gains of growth have gone to the top parts of the income distribution. Um, What you know, what the debate is now is, you know, how concentrated have those gains been at the top and just how how slow has growth been below the top. And I think it's a good debate to have. But I think at this in a striking way, since I first wrote the book, the first version of the book in 2006 and the publication of the second revised edition in 2019, I feel like that debate is over. And and what is um, and what is really I think, though, still an active debate, and the one that the the second edition of the Great Risk Shift is focused on is the idea that look, we we have two problems here, and if we just address inequality by say, you know, putting a tax on the rich and providing some more uh, benefits through the earned income tax credit or something like that, we're not going to address the insecurity that the middle class and 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 other groups are right. facing because of the degree to which our country isn't very good at, at ensuring people against the kind of fundamental risk to their economic well-being. And so I think you know, very much. I'm very much supportive of the idea that we should do some redistribution, but I actually think that the, you know, the term redistribution doesn't accurately describe what a lot of the policies are that we need. Those policies are more like, you know, opportunity and insurance policies that give people a floor of protection and the means to succeed. And that's what's, I think, important to a lot of people. So I find myself still frustrated that even though we've seen a more and more recognition that inequality is a problem, that we're still not thinking about the the problems that Americans are facing in this dynamic way that that the panel yeah. data that that we've been talking about provides. And and we have sort of a weird system in, in the United States, a weird kind of employer government system. I think at one point in the book you mentioned that back in the day, if you had actually compared American worker benefits from their employers and the government, we were pretty much on par, did better than a lot of our, you could call them peer countries, I guess. Well, that's actually, Michael, that's actually still true today. Okay. But if you just look at aggregate spending, because our healthcare costs are just so high, (laughs) right? So, but, but it's still, it's a reminder that even though employers have cut back, that if you look, it's not that we're not spending a lot. It's that we're spending badly and through means that don't provide protection 
yeah. to people who, who really need it. And I actually think it's really important to understand that we could spend large... So basically, if you look at the data, the most recent data from the OECD, um, Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, they have a measure of private social spending and public social spending. And I won't get into how they define those, but it's a pretty good, um, it's a pretty good tally. And, and they also adjust for relative tax levels. The U.S. has lower tax rates. And what you see then is that in the aggregate, controlling for tax rates, the U.S. spends almost as much as France does. When um, France is like the number, you know, it's the big spender country. Um, so we're up there with some of the Scandinavian countries, Sweden, Norway, Denmark, um, Finland. And you, you ask, well, why, why do things look so much more insecure here? And, I, and the answer is because, um, because so much of that spending is uh, going to health care, right? So we spend, you know, more than, you know, the, 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 the average OECD nation spends roughly half as much as us, and even the sort of higher spending rich nations are, are not close to us. And the second, the second reason I think it's really important to understand is that a lot of that money is going to benefits for pretty well-off people. If you look at the distribution, say, of retirement benefits, so we, we, we subsidize retirement benefits through the tax codes. It costs a couple hundred billion dollars a year. About 80% of those benefits, those tax breaks go to the richest 20% of Americans. So it is a distributional issue, but it's not the one that we often focus on. It's that we actually have a system that if you're stably employed by an employer that is um, generous with benefits and you make a fair amount of money, you actually can get a pretty good retirement plan and pretty good health plan, though you would spend less, honestly, if you were living in a country that had better control of healthcare costs. But if you are a middle-class person who's on the edge, and there are a lot of them, or much less a working class person who doesn't have access to, to a workplace plan, you're in a world that is fundamentally different and insecure. And so it is an inequality story, but it's not the one that we hear about. It's not about income. It's about access to security. Right. And you, in the context of how things have changed between employers and employees, you, you make this distinction in the book between what you call the old contract yeah. and the new contract. And maybe you could talk a little bit about what those are and who sort of benefited most or least under those. Yeah. So the, look, let's be clear. The old contract, which was sort of personified by companies like Ford and GM, um, the old contract was highly exclusionary in certain ways, right? It was a male, uh, white working ideal. And mm -hmm. just as African-American men moved into that world in the 60s and 70s, it was already starting to fall apart, right? But But it was actually quite generous um, toward uh, blue collar workers who had uh, stable employment um, and who had generous benefits. And unions were a big part of this, but they weren't the only part. There's a lot of great research by historians and business scholars that shows that non-unionized firms, partly because they were under pressure to compete with unionized firms, adopted a lot of these policies as well. And, and to give you a sense of just how dramatic, so, so there have been two shifts away from this old contract. Um, and the way to think about this old contract is a lot like it was a, it was a stable shared risk relationship that employers got stuff out of it because people would work longer for a particular firm and they'd invest in firm specific skills. 
and workers got something out of it because employers actually pooled a lot of risk. I mean, we don't think of employers yeah. as a site of risk pooling, but remember, if your employer is providing you with a defined benefit pension, right, uh, that is a pension that gives you a fixed benefit, just like Social Security in retirement, then it's taking on market risk. It's taking on the risk uh, that you'll live longer than expected. Uh, it's taking on risk uh, uh, as well that surround inflation. And in many of these policies, it also included risks that involved you know, whether you had a dependent spouse or whether or not you had um, uh, uh, children who were living at home. You know, so these were really mini welfare states these employers were operating. And those systems are, are essentially gone. And, and, you know, they're still in the public sector workforce. Um, they're still in sort of old labor contracts, but those don't apply to most new workers. And the new world the new contract is, uh, instead of a shared risk arrangement, it's basically much more like a free agency uh, re relationship where the employer has no obligations to you and you, in turn, have weak obligations to the employer. And in any case, you know, if you think about it, where you're, you're, you're talking about a relationship, uh, whether it's a personal relationship or an employment relationship, where... Um, where you're treated as if you both have equal options. The, the reality is that, um, that in many cases, one party has a lot more power and right. uh, a lot more um, uh, leverage. And in the case of employment, it's the employer, right? So you don't, you know, individually, it's pretty hard for you to get your employer to offer generous benefits. It's, it really comes out of the employer's, you know, judgment about what the market uh, will what what the employment market you know suggests would be a good strategy for and so for many employers they have decided that what the current world economy and current domestic economy um, encourage and require if they're going to be competitive is to essentially treat their workers as contingent and some of them are formally contingent but you know nobody who works for Walmart feels like they've got a lifetime right. job yeah. even though they're not technically a contingent worker the, so Walmart is now the biggest firm in the US and, and GM was at the turn of the century and uh, or in the mid 20th century and Walmart's now the biggest firm and that's the kind of employment model now we're beginning to see that get even more extreme in the so-called gig economy companies like Uber right or sure. um or some of the task um, sites like TaskRabbit or Amazon's Mechanical Turk. These are kind of the apotheosis of the new employment contract. That is, there is no, there is no employment relationship. And you see a lot of companies segmenting their workforce, so contracting out all the stuff where they don't want to be in the position of being essentially uh, a welfare state, um, where they want their workers to be on their own. And I basically think that this is a trend that is not going to change um, and that is not as problematic as you might think if the public sector steps in to provide those sources of security that employers are no longer providing. You know, the reason why having legal status as an employee is so important in the United States is because all of these other benefits come with it. Um, but if a lot of these right. benefits were moved out of the workplace, it would be much less problematic. So if every Uber driver had, you know, every Uber driver had generous insurance and, and, a, and a stronger safety net 
um, and better pensions and real protection against unemployment benefits, unemployment and so on, uh, we would be much less concerned. And by the way, it would also mean, since you'd pay for this with taxes, um, partly on companies, um, that these companies would have to pay some of their fair share. So to me, the shift that we've seen that has eroded the the private welfare state um, really doesn't uh, have much chance of changing itself, I think we could discipline it in certain ways, but that it doesn't require that we accept this massive amount of insecurity. Instead, it calls on us to rediscover and re, uh, re-embrace the kind of basic idea of social insurance, that is, that people are provided universal coverage against certain life risks, um, and they uh, receive those benefits regardless of which employer they work for. Right. And, and I guess the main reason we, we you, you don't really think that this is coming back in the private sector is that, you know, between globalization and technological change, that the, the world has changed in such a way that there's just no way that American companies could do that and be competitive, essentially. I think at one point in the book, you mentioned that uh, GM, GM said that up to $1,500 of every vehicle was, you know, went to uh, uh, benefits, healthcare costs. And immediately I thought, well, if you're comparing them to say, I don't know, to Volkswagen or, you know, some other European company, those costs are subsidized. So that gives those companies a competitive advantage and GM can't, you know, compete with that. Exactly. So that's, I think, an irony of this, which is that, (laughs) as I said, I think in a lot of cases, um, a position that says that we need to provide strong social insurance through government um, is actually a position that's pretty compatible with a free, with a, with a a fairly, you know, a decentralized free, free market in which employers are free to move from uh, job to job. Um, And and it is actually much more compatible with a competitive global economy because there there are lots of reasons for differences across countries in how much it costs to produce goods and um and we all know that that the the U.S. is not going to compete just on low-wage labor, right? It's right. it's obviously going to have to compete um, on having uh, you know higher-skilled workers producing goods that aren't easily produced in big factories in China. But um, but we certainly aren't competing with our peer rich countries on those in those areas very well when the companies are saddled with healthcare costs that are far higher than in other countries. And, you know, I should add that like the, if you look at other rich countries, very few of them have a very substantial role for private pensions either. I mean, there, there, there are private pensions in other countries and they're particularly prominent in places where there um, are strong, strong unions. Um, But they're really supplementary to much more generous, basic public pensions. And, and there is an area too, where, you know, we, we think people may we may think that people should be working longer than they used to, so we may want to change policy around that. But we still believe that there's a portion of people's lives where they're exiting the labor force, um, whether because they have to, because their health has deteriorated, or because they want to, because they've worked their whole life in tough jobs and they want to have some time away from it. Um, and contribute to society in other ways. We, as long as we believe that, and I think we we will continue to. It's a, it seems like a reasonable fruit of modern affluent society that people should have a retirement. Um, 
it doesn't make sense for that to be a, a, an employee employer responsibility. Um, and to the extent that people need to save on their own on top of that, that doesn't have to be run through employers as well. So, so to me, we really should say that employment-based benefits had great value in the U.S. Um, in, in the period in which they meshed well with the incentives of firms. But in our contemporary economy, for a variety of reasons, they don't, and they shouldn't have the kind of role they once did. And it's a transition issue, as as you know, I've thought a lot about this with regard to healthcare. Right? Mm-hmm. How do we move toward a broader public role in healthcare? You can't do it overnight. We have a very path-dependent system that is one that's gone down a particular path that you need to accommodate when you think about how to change it. But, but. The, the right policy is to move away from these benefits and provide broader public benefits that are available to all, all Americans, regardless of whether they are fortunate enough to work for a firm that provides them. Yeah. Now, I mean, a lot of what we're, we're talking about seems pretty depressing, I think, to a lot of folks. And they, they, I can see a counter argument along the lines, uh, along these lines. And, you know, you're right if you look up until, I don't know, maybe from 1980 to 2010, let's say. But in, in recent years, you take a look at, uh, uh, you know, record low unemployment, even the percentage of discouraged workers is down, long-term unemployment's down, wage growth outpacing inflation. It looks like Things are maybe better than that 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 kind of depressing picture. I mean, how do you sort of reconcile what we're seeing in the economic data over the last, I don't know, six, eight years or so with this with, with what you're talking about? Well, I would say two things. Um the first is that um is that I I'm not I'm not i I'm not a doomsayer. That is to say that I think for because of the fact that we are already spending a lot on these benefits, that they're overwhelmingly popular and that um, properly understood, they're highly compatible with a dynamic capitalist economy, that we really have it within our grasp. If and, and you know as well as I do that the big problem is getting our political system to, sure. yeah. <laughs> to move forward on this. And, and, for, and that would be a, a whole other conversation, which we actually had about American amnesia. But I'm actually an, quite an optimistic about, about the capacity to respond to this challenge. So, so there, are, there are challenges we face as a society, and the most notable being climate change, where I'm, I'm much more... I'm much less optimistic about that. But this is like, this is honestly, this is kind of easy stuff, right? We could expand social security benefits by moving, you know, raising the, the, the share of wages that are taxed by social security. We could uh, move towards, you know, we could create a Medicare option for Americans and for employers that would allow people to get good coverage through Medicare, which is a more efficient system than private insurance. And uh, we could uh, provide paid leave that was contributory, as some states are doing. These are all things that are like not just not just conceivable, but in many cases already uh, in operation and working well and just need to be expanded and reinforced. So that's, that's what makes me optimistic. And that's why I don't, I don't, I, 
my optimism about the policy is tempered by my pessimism about our politics. But but I should say that since the people are saying, hey, the economy is great, are also just focusing on the economic problems, that I can do the same, right? So on the economic front, this is a totally fixable and doable thing. Now, (laughs) now you move to the second point, which I think is a um, which is, I think, a, a really fundamental. So I wrote a piece not too long ago, which was basically titled, If the Economy is Doing So Great, Why Are People Not Happy? Yeah. And, you know, so there is an increase in consumer confidence, but there's a sense, a sort of pervasive sense of disquiet about the economy, um, despite the fact that there are these top-line numbers that look good. Now, some of it, as you said, is that you really do want to dig into the employment statistics. You really want to ask, you know, how, how much have wages really gone up for how long? But I think we should really step back from that and say, look, economies go up and they go down. And hopefully when they go down, they're not going down in like massive financial crises that destroy people's lives. We really need to make sure that we prevent that. But economies go up and down, but that's like the sort of, that's the waves of the economy. And what I'm talking about is the tide. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. Each recession, each high point has been more insecure than the one before. And, you know, maybe this, period is, is because it comes on the heels of the worst financial crisis since the Great Depression, you know, looks a little better. But let's just go back in time and ask, right? So you've got a period of strong, in the 80s, you had a period of strong growth, right? And you didn't see the same levels of uninsurance. Uh, you didn't see the shift yet from defined benefit pensions that offered a guaranteed benefit to defined contribution pensions that said you have to do this on your own. But by the 90s, right, which was also a period of strong growth, and I'm sure, you know, rates of health insurance coverage had been declining dramatically for a decade. Um, defined contribution pensions were coming to dominate the system. More and more working families were two earners that were facing strains about making that work. And healthcare costs were continuing to go up and up and up. Fast forward to the 2000s, right? In Over the course of the 2000s, right, we saw a 10 percentage point decline in the share of people who had health insurance, right? So we, we've seen, and now we come to this present period, and because of the Affordable Care Act, the one happy story here is that one trend, that is the decline in health insurance, has been arrested, though it's starting to go up again uh, in the wake of uh, the, the attacks on the Affordable Care Act. So, But the other things, like the decline of, of retirement security, the degree to which there aren't good ways for families to balance work and family, given our lack of paid leave, we are like essentially the only country, yeah. not only the only country in the rich world, but one of the few countries in the like moderately rich world that doesn't have a paid leave policy and so on. So my point is that the tide of security has been going out for a while. And it's been going out because of this huge structural shift, right? The structural shift is that we build a system around a certain model of employment and a certain understanding of how the economy worked, and it no longer fits with the world that we're living in. And ironically for me, uh, from my standpoint, I want to be clear, different people have different prescriptions here, but from my standpoint, that the solution is actually for us to sort of embrace the original idea that um, that animated 
a lot of the policies uh, in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. This was the idea of social insurance that Franklin Roosevelt pushed into America, the American context in a, in a big way with the Social Security Act of 1935. And essentially, the Social Security Act was kind of a down payment. It, it, had, it didn't have health insurance. It had a retirement plan, but it didn't have health insurance. It had a weak, relatively weak unemployment insurance. It had nothing to do with, with paid leave and the things that we now understand are essential part of having uh, a, a welfare functioning economy when, when we have more, much greater gender equality. So, so basically, I think we need to say, okay, that was the right idea. The hazards and vicissitudes of life uh, are, such, are such that um, private insurance is often not going to be able to deal with that, and families aren't going to be able to cope with it on their own. Yeah. It's actually an area where government can do a pretty damn good job, efficient job, of providing protection. And let's try to figure out the places where we can strengthen social insurance, make it truly universal, uh, and deal with the major risks that families face so that they're not riding this roller coaster that I, that I talk about in the yeah. book. And and I I would it would be I would be remiss if I didn't ask you a specifically a healthcare focused question to to end and especially because I, I'm using I used a great risk shift in my public policy class this semester and we talked about uh, your proposal uh, the Medicare for everyone which you know in a lot of ways seems like uh, Senator Warren's Medicare for all proposal I'm sure that's not entirely coincidental um well now to be clear it's it's pretty similar to her her interim steps right, to her Medicare right. for all proposal um and um and it is not entirely coincidental but I would say that I think that the 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 story there um, how Senator Warren, who started with a really robust Medicare for All proposal, but then recognized that there was a really difficult transition problem, that that story is exactly the story I was just telling you before, right? Yeah. That we will have to move toward a new system with the idea that it's going to take some time. And um, But go on, you were probably going to well, ask no, no, more. Yeah, and in fact, I, she, right recently, she kind of said, well, we will need to do this in stages, basically, which lines up exactly what you were saying. But the, the thing that I guess maybe not impressed me, but sort of maybe depressed me, I guess, is my students, even the most energetic and, you know, liberals, the conservative students obviously didn't, you know, weren't a fan of big government. <laughs> right. But and, you know, I'm in northern Kentucky. There are plenty of conservative students as well. But even the the liberal, very optimistic students said, you know, looked at the plan and we talked about Senator Warren's plan and they said, I just I just can't support this because I think it's totally unrealistic. I don't see a way forward. We could, you know, we, President Obama abandoned the public option for, you know, for uh, the Affordable Care Act, which was far less transformative. And there are these massive upfront uh, transition costs. And so even my even even my most optimistic students seem to be sort of pessimistic when it came to transformative policy change. And and maybe you can give those students, some of whom I, I imagine are listening, and others, I hope some, so. some reason, yeah, some reason to to hope. I mean, is this still, yeah. still a, a progressive pipe dream? As a lot of people, even on the left, seem to seem to think. Well, I think Medicare for all is is it is a, it is a progressive pipe dream if the dream is that we're going to get there in in a matter of years um, rather than over uh, at least a decade or more, and. Um, but I don't think that the proposal I put out, which I'll explain in a moment, is a pipe dream. And, and I think people should understand that when it, when it comes down to it, most of the barriers, not all of them, but most of the barriers are, are fundamentally political. Right. And, um, and that is 
important to keep in mind because if it it would be one thing if we we just had no evidence that a universal Medicare system would would be effective at providing universal quality coverage. That's not really in doubt. And um, our Medicare program is a lot more efficient than the private sector. It pays lower prices. Um, it has proved to be um, capable of, of, of providing very high quality care and broad access to providers, broader than most private insurance plans, to um, a big chunk of our population. So, and other countries that have universal systems, whether they pursue a single payer, one payer model, or whether they have multiple payers also show themselves to be far, far more uh, effective, efficient. And um, it is really shocking the extent to which the U.S. has fallen behind other rich countries in basic health statistics. Most notably, we've seen uh, an actual decline in longevity in recent years, and we've seen rising death rates among uh, uh, middle-aged Americans across the board. It's really, it is a shocking development and one that really calls into question how yeah. well that system is working. But to get back to what I would do, I mean, I think... the main thing that you would want to do is create a plan that people could enroll in and employers could enroll in that would be affordable. And if you do that uh, and you have a mechanism for ensuring that employers are contributing to the cost of that coverage if they don't provide insurance themselves, you've gone a long way towards creating universal insurance. Now, I think the big issue is is political. And I think the biggest problem right now is essentially that we have not just extreme partisan polarization, but as I pointed out in in American Amnesia with Paul Pearson, uh, asymmetric partisan polarization. We've got a party, a Republican Party, that has moved really dramatically to the right. It's gotten more radicalized, particularly around issues of right-wing populism. But I think that's partly because its economic policy agenda is so conservative and not that popular. You know, you think about how badly the tax cuts that Republicans passed in 2017 have played on the campaign trail. They basically had to talk about immigration because they can't talk about their economic agenda. So that that is to me a huge problem. And 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 you might say, well, that's not fixable. But look, we've had a moderate, a more moderate Republican Party in the past. Um, we've had a, a real reform within the Democratic Party historically that shows that when moderates like Bill Clinton feel as if the party is moving too far from from what will win elections, that that they can push it back. And so we need a kind of uh, uh, an internal revolt within the Republican Party that pulls it back uh, from the fringe. And that, I think, will only happen if there's a serious electoral rebuke of the party. But there are forces that I think could create pressure for that moderation. That there's, first of all, lots of evidence that when Republicans govern in states where they have to be responsive to a broad cross-section of voters, they're actually pretty good and pretty popular. Mm-hmm. I think the four most popular governors in the United States today are all Republicans in blue states. Um, and then second, the demographic changes in our society, which are partly you know, driving this extreme polarization because Republicans are very fearful that they're losing their, their white right. uh, conservative base um, as, a, as a, a majority voting force. But there, there will be a point if our democracy can hold up in the interim when that forces a pretty serious correction in a lot of parts of the country. And the correction will maybe initially involve, as, as it has in California, um, Democrats essentially running the board, but 
But that's partly because right now the party, the Republican Party, is very nationalized, right? But if right. it starts losing in a lot of places, then it's not going to be tenable for it to allow itself to be buried, basically, in state after state. It's going to have to let, as Charlie Barker has in Massachusetts, Republicans uh, govern in a way that's viable in a more pluralist environment. And so, to me, that's the, the hopeful story. And it, it's not that far away if um, if you think about um, if you think about the the incentives of electoral competition, but it is a, it is going to require that our democracy kind of hold together, and that some of these measures that are being used right now to sort of hold off um, the correction, um, like gerrymandering, like stacking the courts, like um, you know, like uh, uh, trying to, to to let money dictate uh, politics as opposed to votes. Uh, and of course, like, you know, all the forms of disenfranchisement that are happening at the state right. level that are making it hard for people to vote. Those things are going to be the main determinant, I think. I think in a free and a fair uh, political competition that you're going to see a correction and that correction is going to ultimately result in a Republican Party that moves back towards the middle. And a serious moderate faction of the Republican Party, I actually think, would likely be a free trade um, a free trade, pro-business, and pro-safety net uh, faction. And the reason I think that is because I think that there's not much else that it could offer to, um, right. to, to aggrieved voters. Um, right now, what it's offering is mostly, you know, uh, highly polarized, polarizing um, kind of cultural red meat. Um, but if you're thinking about, well, we have to offer a, a program that's coupling free trade and not high levels of regulation of the market economy and not, and, and, uh, and relatively open, relative openness to immigration with, uh, and gain the votes of a lot of people who are, who are, uh, feeling like they're on the losing end of yeah. a global economy, it's going to have to be partly through providing greater opportunity and security to working Americans. Yeah. And so that's my hopeful vision. I'm sticking with it. You can tell your <laughs> you can tell your students that they are uh, more than welcome uh, to 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 come up with um, better transition plans to get from here to there. But the most important thing I hope that they'll take away from this is not that I have all the solutions, right? But this is a problem worth addressing. And yeah. to me, that's why I wrote the book um, back in 2006 when it wasn't really being discussed. And it's why I wanted to update it in 2019 when it seems like uh, it is at the heart of our, our national yeah. political discussion. Well, I, I really enjoyed it. And, and I want to recommend just to listeners, if you want sort of a really great overview of my view of of American economic policy and public policy in the post-World War II period, just kind of the Jacob Hacker trifecta of uh, winner-take-all politics, American amnesia, and the great risk shift, that would be that would be my that would be my probably my number one recommendation because I've learned a lot from those books. And so I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me today. Well, thank you very much, Michael. I really appreciate it. And I hope that uh, the people will pay heed to your advice because um, Paul and I and I wrote these books because I think it's these are among the most fundamental issues we face today. And if we, we wrote, you know, it's not that uh, normal for uh, academics to try to write books for a broad audience. Uh -huh. And the only reason you do it, it's not, I can assure you it's not for fortune and not for fame. You <laughs> no. do it because you really want to, um, you really want to help people grapple with 
some of the fundamental challenges that they're facing in their own lives. And um, I appreciate that you uh, host this this important discussion. And I also um, appreciate that um, that you found value in, in the work that I've done. Absolutely. Well, thanks so much. Take care. Bye. So, Jay, what'd you think? Well, I, I liked, uh, you know, here's, like I said at the outset, um, I agree with them that what seems to be uh, the trouble isn't isn't the persistent uh, poverty. It, it's this sense of of economic insecurity. Uh, in that, you know, we we see things like the unemployment rate is at a fifty year low, um, uh, but but people don't necessarily feel it. And um, I my the question that I had. Um, and obviously I don't have access to, or I probably have access to, I just didn't have the time or the inclination to go through all of his, <laughs> his data sources. Um, because my, my thought is, has it always been this way? Um, did people always feel some degree of economic insecurity? Um, my sense is probably less in the past, but um, I, I don't, I don't know that it was fundamentally different. Right. I mean, um, uh, well, and the argument, know. yeah, and the and the argument is basically that there was a time, uh, in not well, it kind of was ending when we were before we really came of age right. when sixties probably yeah fifties and sixties kind of the height of it yeah then when you know you could and you being from where where you came from know this certainly both of us do given we came from northeast Ohio that mills, yeah yeah you could get a job at the mill or at the Ford plant and it would be. The one, the one person, usually a guy, right, who had that job, and that would provide a good, solid, guaranteed living with a great pension and good health benefits for a lifetime. Yeah, and that's no longer the case. And, and I guess maybe, maybe my my reason looking at it is because I've sort of lived with that situation. Yeah. I can remember uh, a kid as a kid when the. Um, uh, Likes Mill uh, closed in Youngstown, Ohio, and that would have been in you know 1976, 77, something like that. Um, that and again, maybe it was just that that sense that. So to me, I, I've always sort of believed that insecurity is out there that you worked at a plant, whatever, but the plant could close. Um, uh, so, but but I, I get where he's coming from. Um, the the one of the things that I guess right I differ with him on the numbers is sometimes how how we're counting uh, things like um, uh, income and wealth and and he makes a good point and you make a good point that it's tough to track people the, the, the what you need for this kind of of, of data is this longitudinal tra- tracking the same people over time and our system really just isn't set up to do that right yeah. um, we have sort of gross aggregate numbers but. You know, as as he points out, for most people, it's sort of an up and down. Uh, uh, you know, good times, bad times, um, and and that's what's more informative if you can track individual people. But that's just tough to do. Yeah. Um, and and in my sense was also not only that, but tracking sort of the three metrics that he he talked about: one being income, one being wealth, one being uh, uh, spending, essentially. Um, that if you you are able to see all those for the same person over time or same group of people over time, um, that's going to be more informative. I just don't know that that's that's out there. Uh, Not to the extent, yeah, and, I, I, and I agree. Sometimes there yeah. was there was some sometimes conflation between income and wealth and so forth. Yeah. Um, for example, he made he made the point that uh, kids uh, making less than their their parents did. Uh, in some cases, that's um, 
and again, I, I couldn't tell this because I didn't have the data he was looking at, but in some cases that strikes me as, um, uh, as sort of a, a symptom of, of wealth, if you will. Um, I see what you're uh, if saying. you're measuring, yeah. if you're measuring income. Yeah. Yeah. I see what you're um, saying. There's, there was a great, um, uh, Joseph Epstein who we're both friends of, uh, friends of fans of God, I wish we were friends with Joseph Epstein. Right? I've actually exchanged emails with him on a number of occasions. Super nice guy. Yeah. Well, then you are a friend of him. Yeah, um, anyway, in, in his, his book, Snobbery, he sort of made the point and kind of jokingly that, um, for it's sort of a status symbol for for wealthy people uh if your kid is you know the less valuable um um uh, your your child's uh career is to the general right. economy right um, that's I a higher saying. status yeah. thing um uh if you're a, a artisanal um uh, you know vegan chef uh, you know that sort of thing um i see but and i guess where where so the I, agreement is is that both or you and I and Jacob Hacker, we're all, we all believe it's concerning that uh, insecurity seems to be, based on the best data we have, rising, and that social mobility in the United States is not good compared to other rich countries. And these are things that we want to improve, both of right. these things. We want, we want to improve. And, I, and I, again, I, I question sort of the, how, we're, how we're counting social mobility, because that was sort of the thing. If we're counting it just by income... Uh, I think there can be a lot of people who have low income but but high social standing. I think it's. I mean, we're talking about sorry, economic mobility, moving up right. into a different economic right. class, that sort of thing. Same thing. Again, it, it depends on whether you're whether you're measuring that wealth number. Um, sure. Well, with the, the, along with income. Well, and and I think that's why the, that's why it's useful to do comparative stuff because we're using the same measures for other countries, then we're getting, I, we're getting at least some sort of a, a valid comparison because we're measuring other countries on the same thing. And so if we are at the almost bottom of all the OECD countries in terms of mobility, uh, regardless of maybe there being some issues with that measure, that suggests to me that we have a problem. Okay. So in the, the I guess then the, the next step, so as far as the... That's where your disagreement comes in, I assume. That's the right, right. Uh, yeah. So that's why I was right. really the most well, curious I'd like to, about. I'd like to hear. I'd like to hear from from you first. I mean, kind of. Well, I mean, I, I'm all. I, I'm largely on board with him. He goes further than than I would, just because I think, as you heard, he's a lot more optimistic than I am about the politics of it. Uh-huh. And basically, you know, his argument it seems to me is that, well, we can't do it now, but demographics are changing in progressive favor, and so it's just a matter of time. That sort of thing. I. I think the resistance is going to be a lot larger. And also I have that kind of Burkean response to it. Just even if we were able to do it all right now, I would be uncomfortable with it just because when you do big things like that, you get unintended consequences. So I'd rather find a way to do this more incrementally. So, but, but, but in general, I, I find the argument that there need that uh, some sort of a, more uh, generous, I guess you could call it, social safety net, and that's regarding that's regarding uh, healthcare, that's regarding education, that's regarding just all over. You know, we talked about SNAP uh, on, the, on the Saturday show. I find the argument that that actually helps to enhance economic growth up to a certain level to be a strong argument because if you put people in a position where they feel comfortable enough to take risks and right. realize that if they fail, it won't destroy their lives. I think that's that's something, and that's I think why we have the corporate bank bankruptcy laws that we have. And I think he made a good point about that. 
Oh, Where? and I, no, I, and I think he was—he's absolutely right on on all of those pieces. That you need to have a situation where you've got uh, people who are willing to take risk, um, uh, but not afraid to take risk. And yeah. he, he pointed out the, the fact of you know, look, the high entire idea of of incorporating um, uh, yeah. is is yeah. to you know encourage that. The ability of our bankruptcy system is to encourage that. And I guess my my concern is, look, there there is a sweet spot. Yeah. Exactly. There and and he would put it somewhere different because I think if if you go too far, um, you get into a a situation where, um, and he even mentioned that people are by nature risk averse, um, that yeah you you don't take a mm-hmm. risk right because you're too comfortable. Yep, and, and I think that's a great point, and that's really that seems to me to be where we we all differ in that sense. Is you would put that you would put that balance point at a lower level of support. Right. I would put it somewhere between you and Jacob Hacker, who would put it, I think, a bit higher than I would be uh, entirely comfortable with. So right. it's it's not it's the same thing with taxes, right? We all we all agree that there is a level at which taxation decreases economic activity because people just say, well, if I'm going to be taxed at 100 percent, there's no point in me earning an extra dollar. And yeah. that, that's almost certainly true for 90 percent. But right. where does that where is that? Where is that cutoff point? And that's where I think, you know, liberal and conservative economists and policy experts differ, you know, differ uh, widely. Yeah. And that's where, but that sort of plays into the sort of the same argument is that, uh, listen, if you're going to be paying more for this uh, social safety net, um, at what point does, do you stop saying, look, it's not worth me taking the risk to make extra money because yeah. I'm just going to get taxed on it anyway. And, and to um, me, that's an argument for incrementalism where you say, yeah. okay, well, let's make it a little more generous and see what happens. Yeah. And well, is that, is that an overall boost to economic growth and are people better off? Because I think we sometimes only look at it through the lens of economic growth. We need to look at what's happening more broadly in a kind of organic sense to society. And maybe that's, you know, another kind of Berkey and conservative yeah part of me coming through. And if so, then we keep on ratcheting it up to the point where it doesn't make sense anymore. And I think, you know, the same thing is true of taxes. I, that's the same reason I would be very much against taxes till we get a recession. Yeah. You know, I mean, (laughs) we get a good solid recession. Then we know where we're where we're at. But it's to say it worked. The logic works the same thing with lowering, which is why I wouldn't. Which is why I wasn't in favor of just huge slashing of taxes. I'm I'm an incrementalist at heart, Jay. That's you know. I, no, and I, I appreciate that. Well, my other my other um, thought though is also, and, and again, I, I don't mean to call out government employees, but the the fact that if you've got, and this is what you see in some of these countries that he he was sort of in praise of. Um, a, a super strong safety net, right? Um, what's the growth in France? What's the unemployment in, in, in France or, or in um, uh, some of these places in, in Europe? Um, that it can kind of become, I mean, you know, where you have really good job security, government jobs, and well, yep. do you want everything run like, run like the post office? Um, no offense to the post office. I, you know, I'm, don't be, but you, you understand what I'm saying, that there is um, too I, much, I, yeah, too I, much I, safety breeds, breeds, sure. uh, a certain amount of competition is important, and you could even say crucial. Um, I, but again, I think we don't want to look just at economic, top-line economic growth numbers. What I think, and this is a lot harder to do and more subjective, is to say, well, do people are people's lives better under 
these circumstances as opposed because because the economic part that's that's a means to an end we measure that the most because it's the easiest thing to measure but it's not what we really care about in the end i mean it, for, for most of us it's not about well do i have x dollars more it's just do I, do I wake up feeling good and happy and fulfilled in my life? And that's what really matters. And the, yeah. the economic growth stuff, that's, that's just, what matters. We, we want you all to be happy. That's what matters. Yeah, well, yeah, but, <laughs> matters but isn't it though? I mean, yeah, absolutely. And so that's just a means to an end. And I'm not saying that we ignore the economic numbers, but it, it, it certainly seems to me that we have gone too far, and this is getting us a little far afield, but I think we've gone a little too far in just focusing entirely on that which we can measure most easily and not kind of taking the broader picture of, well, what is it that makes life fulfilling? And part of what makes life fulfilling and less anxiety-inducing is this this understanding, this knowledge that, you know what, I'm going to try this big thing, and if I fall flat on my face, I'm not going to end up, you know, my life's not going to be over basically. Right. Right. You know? And I think that's, I think that's hugely important. What, what, I mean, here's my other, and this was sort of my conservative sense that I, I got when I was talking, is that the, the safety net that he seems to be asking for, and he made this, this point early uh, on is that, look, people with greater wealth have sort of a greater safety net in that um, wealth being sort of your savings investments, yeah. uh, what you have to fall back on that if something bad happens to you, um, uh, you know, medical, medical situation, job loss, whatever, um, you've, you've got, uh, a, a cushion there. And I think the, the conservative response would be rather than what can we do to get the government more involved in making a safety net is how can we help people build wealth sure. uh, so that they would have their own, their own cushions to fall back on. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know, I, I think there are some things that, that exist right now that are, that are, you know, the government does it and, and subsidizes it for I mean, the big, big thing would be, you know, 401k plans and those types of things to encourage people to spend and invest. Um, and I think that the, the, the conservative response would be, we ought to do more for that, um, uh, to, to promote that, uh, investment, uh, savings investment. And also, um, uh, and this has already happened, I think, at the federal level and a lot of the state levels, um, is allowing people, you know, intergenerational transfers. Um, it it would be, uh, you know, fantastic if, if everybody were a Kennedy and, you know, inherited, sure. uh, you know, plenty of money. Um, but yeah, it, it, it would be, I mean, I think, so, I mean, yeah, I, I think, no, I, I think those are, those are sort of probably the more conservative responses to, and well, instead of building a bigger government safety net, let's, uh, give people the tools or remove the impediments, um, uh, to them building their own yeah. safety nets. And, and, and hackers concern with that is, and, and I will speak for him since, like I said, in, in addition to just talking with him, I've been living this book for the last month or so in my class. And so I feel pretty familiar is basically that this has gone to the extent where be, people are being thrown to the wolves saying, okay, you have a 401k, but, uh, you know, choose to invest in it or not. And, you know, uh, a lot of what happens to you depends on what the stock market's going to be right before you retire. And I, I, you probably know, and I certainly, I know people who were planning on retiring before the big 2008 you know, financial right. crisis, like, oh, crap, I got to work another five, 10 years, maybe more. And so uh, to me, the, the, the correct answer, so to speak, is both. 
In other words, yes, you're right. It is important to try to help people find ways to build wealth on their own. But at the same time, it's important to understand that some people, for various reasons, especially people for reasons through no fault of their own, who aren't able to do that or suffer some sort of uh, reversals, sure. we need to take care of those people and make sure that their lives aren't destroyed. No, and I, I again, I don't disagree with you on that. Yeah. Um, and and I think it's it's uh, we're, our, our differences are probably matters of degree. Yeah. Right. And and where we draw the line. Um, uh, because I, I think there, there could probably be, uh, you know, some sort of insurance product type. I mean, right now we have, we have, you know, an unemployment system, um, which isn't great, but there is, there is this insurance there. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, and, and, uh, you know, the healthcare is the other big thing where people can take a, a hit, but, um, yeah, I, I, I think that's the yeah. uh, defending and absorbing against the, the shocks. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, I think you're right. In, in this, like a lot of issues, I think uh, people are presented oftentimes or sides are presented as being diametrically opposed when really once you drill down a little bit, it does tend to be much more of an emphasis or a difference of, of degree of, of where you put the balance, which is yet another reason, again, why I think the incrementalists in the end are, right. are the people we should be. No, of course, again, the, the Warren plan, though, I mean, would, would be something that is, yeah. is not incremental. Not it at is all. Like a, not you know, uh, $56 bazillion or, or whatever it is. Yeah. Um, but yeah. it would be, yeah, it would be, it would be a lot up front. Of course, her argument and, and Bernie Sanders' argument are in the end, it would actually be a savings, but the upfront transition would be wrenching and massive and uh and again my conservative side coming out would lead to a massive number of unintended consequences and would yep. we all maybe be better off in the end i i don't know maybe we would but 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 temperamentally and by experience i tend to i tend to avoid taking great leaps but as some you know some people point out sometimes you can't cross a canyon in a bunch of tiny steps sometimes you have to take a great leap so mm. that is a sometimes a valid argument that's what that's what Mal thought. Um, but I'll leave it there. <laughs> oh. <laughs> we All right. Well, yeah, I actually enjoy. I really enjoy doing this. Um, and I'm glad Jay that you were able to take the time. I think this is actually a lot better way because logistically it would be really tough to it's get. It's tough to do two people interviewing one person. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. For a lot, not just not just logistically, but also it just doesn't work well with the exactly, flow. Yeah. And yeah. so I think this works a lot better. And, and, and I felt like this brought more to light than just running the interview. And I thought it was a, a worthwhile thing. So listeners, we really, again, this is, this is an experiment. First time we're doing it. So let us know what you think, positive, negative, uh, indifferent. You're probably not going to let us know, but we really, <laughs> you know, <laughs> it was really okay. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But we really would appreciate because I think this is this adds some value to the interview. So let us know what you think. We would really appreciate hearing from you. And you know how to reach us, mail at politicsguys.com. And uh, thank you very much. Thanks.